All right. Well, as uh, Drew mentioned, we're uh, knee-deep in this series, uh, marriage, sex, and the gospel, and then the most important part is everything in between. Uh, this is a, a broad, broad brush, and, and uh, you know, it's not just about our current relationship status. It's really about looking at, uh, from a, a biblical and scriptural standpoint, of the, the standards God has placed uh, and understanding them and how God has uniquely called us to be in relationship with one another, being in His image. And so um, I, I'm excited to this morning to have some special guests. And uh, this is, if you don't know them, this is Pastors Eric and Carol Smith, and they are actually the founding pastors of South Valley Community Church. And... Uh, we wouldn't be here today if uh, they didn't answer the call uh, that God had to bring uh, South Valley to the South Valley. And uh, we, uh, we, my wife Kim and I accept, you know, especially appreciate them because they've been instrumental in our life. Uh, we've known them uh, pretty much since the, since the conception of this church. I was two at the time, of course. But, um, <laughs> but actually, Eric uh, was very instrumental uh, with Kim and I because we weren't married yet, and we were, you know, I was still trying to to convince Kim to marry me and all that kind of stuff. And so Eric w met with us, and we tried to work through all of that stuff, you know. Yeah. And here we are, you know, we're going to be married 30 years, March 5th. Can you believe that? Wow. And, uh, yeah, Kim, Kim's the cradle robber, you know. So <laughs> I'm significantly younger than her. Um, but... Uh, we appreciate the, the two of them coming, and, and this morning's going to be kind of a special uh, emphasis on marriage, but it's going to be with yeah, a twist a of job. just their personal testimony and yeah. things that they've learned and principles that they've come to understand. So uh, I think you're in for a real treat, and so let's really uh, welcome uh, Pastors Eric and Carol. Hey, thank you. Thank you. It's great. Are we good, Joe? All right. Hey, the truth was, Greg wasn't two. He just acted like it. I mean, I had to kind of sock it to him a little bit. Hey, grow up. Kim's, Kim's way ahead of you, buddy. <laughs> well, welcome, South Valley. We're thrilled to be here. We're going to talk a little bit about marriage because we've been married for 46 years. And you just pick stuff up, you know. You kind of pick stuff up along the way, and uh, in our case, maybe more mistakes than even things we did right, but uh, because of our commitment to Christ and to each other, we're still in the game, and we're enjoying it more now than we've ever enjoyed it before. So I want to ask you out there, if any of you married folks uh, during your dating time or maybe your first dance or whatever, do, do any of you have your song? It's like, honey, they're playing our song has anybody got one of those? Anybody raise your hand? Yeah, what was your song? Do you remember? In the mood. In the mood. <laughs> okay, that's rocking right there. I like that one. Yeah. A thousand kisses deep. A thousand kisses deep. We were engaged. Whoa. Let's, you were engaged during that song, huh? Yeah. Cool. Did you raise your hand? Yes. What did you? Take your time. I'm not sure what that means. Herman, you know what that means here? Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's good. Anybody else? Yeah. 
Truly by Lionel Richie. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yes, sir. Dreamweaver. Yeah, there you go. Super. Anybody else? That's good. First service, only one couple. What? That's nice. Yeah. Nobody with Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers? Every millennial in here goes, who? What? What's that? Just one of the greatest songs in the history of mankind. <laughs> Unforgettable. That's good. See, you guys are way, way more into it. Well, I asked that because Carol and I had our special song. So when we hear it, this is it. We chose that song because in many, many ways, we are that different, honestly, you know? It's, uh, it's that unusual. You listen to the whole song and there's more to it, and there's certainly more to it in our relationship because it's interesting. They say opposites attract, but after about six months, opposites attract, then they attack <laughs> because the thing that typically drew you to that person that you were lacking often can become a, a source of annoyance once you get to know another person. And so it's been challenging for us to be married. And uh, we're still learning to appreciate each other's idiosyncrasies and differences because it certainly made marriage interesting for us, made it a big adventure. And so if you're out there and you feel like, oh, we're kind of incompatible, don't give it up because it's going to keep things alive and interesting uh, and it's going to make your marriage a great adventure. Now, it's been said that love is blind, but I like to say if love is blind, then marriage is an eye-opener. <laughs> Hello, for sure. How about this one? I like this overhead. It said marriage is like a deck of cards. In the beginning, all you need is two hearts and a diamond. But in the end, you wish you had a club and a spade. Okay, so pretty much... That was cold. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> that there's funny. <laughs> if you don't think that's funny, I don't know what to say. <laughs> now, in the Bible, we're told that uh, the two are supposed to become one. And I like the word become because it's obviously not automatic. It takes a lifetime. But the two are to become one. The big struggle, though, in marriage is often, which one? And there's this power struggle as to who should have the most influence, the most control, and all that kind of stuff. But actually, both men and women are considered before God as made in his image, and both are indispensable to the success of a marriage. There's no one that's more important than another. And here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. The story is told of how the captain of the ship, a ship, and the chief engineer were arguing about who was the most important person aboard. So they decided to change places for 24 hours. The captain went down to the engine room. The chief engineer went up to the bridge. Two hours later, the captain came up from the engine room covered with oil and saying to the chief engineer, you've got to come to the engine room and help me. I just can't do this. The chief engineer said to the captain, it doesn't matter. We've run aground. <laughs> 
Okay, we're in a series called Marriage, Sex, the Gospel, and Everything in Between. And Carol and I kind of are here today because we sort of represent everything in between. And speaking of Carol, Carol, why don't you say hello, hello. Hello, hello. Goodbye. We're st still trying to figure out why. We say <laughs> just the opposite. You know, there actually is a uh, condition that someone can have an oppositional defiance disorder. <laughs> you know, we're entitling our thoughts on marriage. It's called a marriage worth fighting for. Yeah. And for those who know us know that you know, we're pretty candid about the struggles we've had in marriage. And maybe you'd wonder, if you are new to hearing us share, why we would be focusing on the difficulties that are in marriage rather than on the benefits and the pleasures of marriage. And I think it's because most people don't need to be talked into getting married, especially in the church. I mean, everyone wants to get married. Our problem is that we don't always want to get married for the right reasons, and so we want to share what are the wrong reasons for getting married, and we want to talk about why really a godly marriage is worth fighting for, and it really takes a fight. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's going to be easy. Now, if I were to uh, give a definition for what a godly marriage is, I would put it this way, a marriage in which both the man and woman are surrendered to doing life God's way. Um, and of course, not only is that difficult, surrender to God, doing life God's way, but imagine the fact in marriage, the hardest thing about surrender in marriage is that you're surrendering to the process of God using an imperfect person to perfect you. Right. I mean, that's what, you know, it's just a double whammy. <laughs> As believers... We're assigned the ominous task of modeling the relationship of Christ to his church in our sacrifice and submission to each other. And really, there's nothing more contrary to human nature it's true. than sacrifice, you know, surrender, submission, all those S words we don't like to talk that much about. And we have to do this modeling in a context where we're navigating challenges, managing finances, domestic responsibilities, work demands, the children, all at the same time trying to have an enjoyable sexual relationship and having fun together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, if you were to ask me, is marriage difficult? I would say, no, it's impossible. <laughs> and I'm serious with that, and I think that's how God designed it, because we have to know that human love has its limits. Right. And marriage, a godly marriage, requires the Holy Spirit. It requires a partnership with the Holy Spirit because the very context of, the most famous context of marriage in Ephesians 5 talks about the Spirit-filled life mm -hmm. and that that is what is required in marriage. A God-honoring marriage requires the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And I really know personally what it's like to feel incapable of doing marriage God's way. And I think that's where we all need to be in order to really surrender to the Holy Spirit. And even though there are tremendous benefits to marriage over the four, our 46 years, um, we've seen these benefits. And they're in Proverbs 
I know it's Ecclesiastes 4, it talks about these benefits that two are better than one. You know, you all probably are familiar with it because you get to share life's work and labor. You, you reap more benefit, it says. It talks about when one falls, someone's there to lift them up. Woe to the person who falls alone. There's actually a proverb uh, that we're familiar with. It says that proverb that problems shared are problems halved. And actually, this is based on a scientific fact. According to this new research, um, these researchers from California have proved that the best way to beat stress and to share is to share your feelings and share with someone in the same situation yields the best re results. And we've experienced that. I know when I was in Africa for four months, there were times when I, yeah, I just had to talk to Eric. I was there by myself, and I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. And I actually talked him into changing his ticket and coming, coming to see me earlier than had planned. And so I really understand what it's like to feel lifted up. Another thing mentioned in this passage is that someone, when you lie together, you keep your... It says, let me read it. If two lie down together, they can keep each other warm, but how can one person keep warm by themselves? And that really is one of the joys of marriage is just sleeping together, enjoying the comfort of being with someone. And is it funny that one of the first things that can goes when you're having troubles in a marriage is, well, I'm not going to sleep with him. You know, it's kind of like you're cutting off your nose to spite your face, one of the great comforts. And the Bible says, don't go to bed angry. Why? Well, it, says it gives the devil a foothold. A foothold. And uh, the relationship just kind of gets impacted terribly. Of course, the last thing it talks about is to have someone to stand with you against opposition. I liked how the New Living Translation says, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back mm -hmm. and face any opposition, and that really is the key in marriage. Unfortunately, as we've found, often we're standing face to face too much rather than back to back right. facing the opposition out there, and so we have challenges. And I, um, I think Eric maybe would like to share what some of those challenges are as we understand that the benefits outweigh the difficulties, but we definitely want to understand what some of those difficulties are. Eric, what have you found to be one of the biggest challenge in our marriage? Okay. Oh, where, oh, where to begin? <laughs> okay, I got one. And we're going to answer several questions as we go through here together. Um, what's been the greatest challenge? If I was just going to choose one, I would simply call it the myth of the perfect spouse. This is, a, this is a huge deception in our culture today about young people being told, hey, just wait, 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 wait till you find your perfect soulmate. That's kind of what's being shared. Well, hey, there's a serious problem with that because that perfect person doesn't exist. 
For example, let me just give you a list of what a woman should look for in a prospective husband. I like this one. Marry the guy who will play with your hair, won't mind holding your cold hands, will go on long walks with you, is serious but also knows how to have fun, makes you laugh, will join you on your random bursts of song, watches chick flicks with you just to spend time with you, lets his inner child out sometimes, isn't afraid to be himself, will stand up for what he believes, will stand up for you and protect you, make you feel like a princess. You can be completely yourself around him. You can talk to him about anything. He will pray with you and for you. Loves you, but loves God more. But most importantly of all, marry the guy who's your best friend. I'm like exhausted just reading that list. (laughs) Holy Toledo, is that a job description for me? Hey, the only person that could fulfill that wish list of masculine marital expectations is who? Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's not you. You know, it's funny. Before you're married, men will do a lot of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Have you found that to be true? Yes. Okay, hey, don't interrupt me again, okay? (laughs) Now, do it all you want. I don't care. And ladies, if you're not careful, this might be what happens to you while you are (laughs) waiting for the perfect man. All right, let me kind of summarize this. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, a leading American theologian and longtime professor at Duke University, wrote a famous article, created quite a hubbub, stirred, stirred up a lot of stuff. It was entitled, We Always Marry the Wrong Person. See, I mean, immediately in our minds, we go, wait a second. No, we always marry the wrong person. His point was that we never marry the person that we think we're getting married to. That's why the ideal often turns into the ordeal and we start looking for a new deal. He writes, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a critical aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she is going to change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is, it means that we are not the same person after we have entered into it. So, drum roll, last sentence, he said, the primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger with whom you now live. His point, the quest for a perfectly compatible soulmate is an illusion. That's what he's really trying to say here. It's actually impossible because everyone is incompatible with everyone else at some level. The truth is, the minute you marry someone, you and your spouse begin an evolutionary process of change in profound ways, and there's no way to really know ahead of time what those changes are going to look like. That's just how it is. We grow, we evolve, we live on. Now, I know over the years, Carol and I went through seasons in which we had to learn again and again how to love the stranger that we didn't know we were marrying in the first place. 
During these times of transition, Carol and I both had to make adjustments as we got to know each other over and over and over again. The great Christian thinker, thinker Lewis Schmieds, insightfully wrote, quote, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change during that same period of time? This is a great line. My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Now, I've said all the above just to urge you not to fall into this cultural trap and deception of looking for the perfect person, your perfect soulmate. When we go into marriage, With this misconception leading the way, it will inevitably lead to disappointment. And let me say to the single people here, because they've been targeted and they've been affected by this in a big way, as you know, with cohabitation skyrocketing since the 60s. But let me say to the single people present today, please realize the quest for the perfect spouse is often what prevents you from choosing a a reasonable mate right before your very eyes. You can just screen them out with the fault-finding device that we all have. The fault-a-meter, yeah, she's wonderful, but, he's great, but, and we just often, I think, pass over really wonderful opportunities to marry people that would change our lives dramatically. So, don't create expectations no other person can live up to. You know, sometimes we expect human beings to provide for us what only God can do. Don't fall into that trap. So my single friends, please stop trying so hard to find the right person and focus right now on being the right person that your prospective spouse is going to marry. Now, I know it was hard for Carolyn and I to face the realities that we had an imperfect marriage because we kind of came into it daydreaming about what a big difference it was, would make. But in all honesty, one of the greatest struggles I had in marriage was that I brought, it brought to the surface a host of hurts wounds and hang-ups that I carried into our marriage from my earlier life. Even though I thought marriage would almost automatically heal those wounds, it did not. In fact, it seemed to make matters worse. Overhead, I like this one. Don't you love it when couples just shove the cake into each other's face? I'm always out there praying, God, don't let them do that. Ah, shoot! (laughs) Look <laughs> at these guys. <laughs> I thought this was a funny picture, but the, co- the quote is great. It says, marriage is an attempt to solve problems together which you didn't even have when you were living on your own. Now, that may be funny, but in the reality for me was that I had problems before I married Carol, and our marriage exposed them. You follow me? Actually, it didn't create them, it revealed them. And so it is that our spouses often, in that sense, bring out the worst in us and make marriage difficult. And as a result, we are constantly tempted to externalize our pain and blame our spouse for all kinds of issues that aren't out there, they're actually within us. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and God came into the garden and said, you know, hey, Adam, where the heck are you? Did you eat from the tree of the garden, of, of, you know, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, that I've commanded you not to, to eat. And of course, the man said, and the man took, you know, he took it like a man, blamed his wife right here. Boom. The woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. It's her fault. 
It's not my fault. <laughs> and uh, the truth is, instead of blame shifting, we should honestly face the brokenness within our own lives. And instead of fixing the blame, we should begin to dedicate our lives to fixing the problem. Now, here's what all of our like. Here's what our marriages should actually look like. This should be our goal right here on the overhead. We're looking for progress, not perfection. What do you think, Carol? Is that reasonable? Okay, what unrealistic expectations did you bring into the marriage? All right, I think the way I would word that is pretty straightforward. Um, Uh-oh. Pretty much everything was different from what I expected. <laughs> pretty much everything was different than what I expected. I mean, after all, I grew up watching Sound of Music, King and I, Camelot, Romeo and Juliet. So I had this picture that Eric was going to complete me. Uh, I, want, I went into marriage expecting Eric to make me feel good about myself, particularly because I had struggled with such low self-esteem in my areas of womanhood and in my sexuality. And my association to Eric was my ticket to feeling all those things that my dad had failed to help me to feel about myself in my growing up years. So he was supposed to make me feel beautiful, lovable, make me feel valued and important. Um, of course, he came into marriage wanting me to make him feel all those things, and so we were at this impasse. In my growing up years, I um, saw modeled womanhood and manhood portrayed that men had the advantage over women and that men were more important than women. Um, you know, I really had developed this mindset that a woman's value was based on what she could do for her man. And so I set out thinking, I, I need to make him happy. I can remember one stark thing that happened early on. It may have even been, you know, in our honeymoon where I was scrambling some eggs. And I remember him saying, oh, there's a shell in my egg. And I was just devastated. I never told you that either, how devastated I felt because here I'm trying to make it perfect for him. That was or, 46 years ago. <laughs> no. It's the first I've heard about it. Or, or how about, well, my mom would always cook me, you know, this or that, and it was always just kind of like, again, I just took those things really, really hard. Um, I thought marriage would be easy. It would kind of come natural. A relationship with a man would just come natural with a husband, especially since we loved God and we both wanted to serve God. And wasn't God obligated to make it work, to make it easy? And Because he was my man. He was the right man for me. But the reality is there is, as I've said before, there's nothing natural and easy about learning to serve and submit to someone in a relationship. That just doesn't come natural. And the Christian community hasn't always been that helpful in helping us figure out what this serving one another and submitting to one another is supposed to look like. We also grew up in a time during our early marriage where this perfect marriage was projected out. Um, there were two books in particular. One was called Man of Steel and Velvet. And then for the woman, it was 
fascinating womanhood. So this man of steel and velvet, you know, was who I needed Eric to be. I mean, he's this man who has the ability to make me feel secure, arouses admiration, makes me feel womanly. I mean, this is this whole book is describing this on his on his steel side, his velvet side. You know, he understands me. He's gentle. He's attentive. He awakens love and sexual desire in me. Okay, that's on you, Eric. And this is in the Christian community. You know, all the women are reading these books. We're trying to get the men to read that book. <laughs> Us ladies do all the reading, and we do all the telling our guys. Bagging. Hey. <laughs> so here's what fascinating womanhood was no better for me in that it's describing in this book specifically that the wife was to greet her husband at the door after a hard day's work, dressed in as little as possible. I mean, that was one of the big issues in that. And of course, the thing Eric liked the most about the suggestion in this book was that you're supposed to try something very unusually different. Greet him wrapped in cellophane only. That wasn't a bad idea. <laughs> That's the part of the book I, I like the most. <laughs> What's so crazy? It's just crazy about those books. But then when you'd go to the Bible, sometimes you'd see these things portrayed in the Bible that also seemed very difficult and impossible. I don't know how many women have just felt such intimidation over the Proverbs 31 woman. How many here have just felt like, gee, where did she come from? Here she's self-motivated, she's industrious, she's this home executive whose children greet her in the morning with a blessing, and it says, whose lamp does not go out at night. <laughs> and while her husband sits at the gates of the city with the homeboys, I mean, there was just something about this. That is messed up. <laughs> I mean, this is, okay, this is how Isaac deals with that. Say it with me. That's, That's messed, messed up. up. Yeah. I mean, it's really pretty crazy. And then it ends with this phrase that says, there are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. So now all of a sudden there's this competition being introduced where you need to be the best. You need to look the best. The image has to be portrayed that, wow, we've really got this virtuous woman thing down and he's got this man of steel and velvet thing down. Well, it's pretty tough. Um, and I lost my page here. So if you can't look at books, and you, some books just don't really say it right, and even the Bible can be confusing, there has to be principles that can really help us in our marriage. And maybe, Eric, you could share a principle that has helped you in particular. Okay. I have one that I think really impacted me greatly, and that is the concept here, what biblical concept. It was the concept of seeing marriage as a covenant not a social construct. God himself instituted marriage when he said it's not good for a man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. 
Adam also prophesied, saying, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two are to become one flesh. So marriage wasn't something that evolved out of the Bronze Age for the distribution of property. Uh, it's actually divine. And in my case, when I understood that my commitment to Carol wasn't just a social contract, it was a covenant with God, that really impacted me greatly. And I never seriously considered ever divorcing my wife. I thought about running away many times, but not divorcing. So, we see in the Bible that God says marriage is primarily an unbreakable covenant where we promise to love and serve our spouse until what? Until death does cause us to part. You know, in every wedding ceremony, too, people don't get this. You've got to look for it. You've got to watch for it. You know how the first part is the I will, I do part? Do you promise to do this, love, honor, cherish, until death does part you, cause you to part? And when you say I do, that is an oath that you're swearing before God. Because you're not talking to your partner during that part of the ceremony. Did you know that? Then the minister says, if you would please now turn and face one another and while holding hands, repeat after me. Now it's horizontal. The first part is vertical. And a lot of times people don't understand that marriage is not just a covenant between two people. It's a covenant with God himself because it was his idea to begin with. So what I'm saying is the only way to forge a permanent union, one must see marriage first and foremost as a commitment, as a covenant, not a feeling. It's more of an action than it is an emotion. That's for sure. Someone wisely said it's not love that holds marriage together, it's marriage that holds love together, and I believe that strongly. On the overhead, a happy man marries the woman he loves. A happier man loves the woman he married. And this is why a successful marriage has to be built on commitment, on covenant. Here's the truth right here on the overhead. You don't fall into love, you commit to it. You know, it's funny too, sometimes I go to wedding and everybody up there, I love you, I love you. And I'm thinking, what the heck are you saying all that for? We already know that or you wouldn't be there. You know what I mean? That's not what wedding vows are for. No, wedding vows are not a celebration of the current love, but the promise of love in the future, no matter what comes your way. So the heart of biblical marriage is the idea of covenant. In Malachi 2.15, the Bible says, guard your passion, keep faith with the wife of your youth, for she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This is super important to me. That's why when somebody tells me, hey, we don't need a piece of paper to be married because we love each other, I think to myself, what they're really saying is, I don't love this person enough to make an exclusive and permanent commitment to them because I want to keep my options open. And that's why the Bible would never define love apart from commitment. That simply would not be considered true love. Even though John Lennon said, all you need is love. There are countless couples that have proven that just ain't so. Although advocates, and let me close with this section on this, although advocates of cohabitation contend that living together before marriage improves your chances of making a better marriage choice, this assumption is absolutely untrue. And yet it's like promoted. I think there's been like, you know, the exponential increase of cohabitation and it actually is damaging marriages. It's not helping them. 
Research from the National Marriage Project stated people who cohabit before marriage end up divorcing at higher rates than those who do not cohabit before the wedding. Unfortunately, the willingness to cohabit is associated with future marital weakness and jeopardizes your chances for a strong future marriage, end of quote. And by the way, many young people today aren't getting married because of the myth that married people really aren't that happy. Now, I can understand if they witnessed divorce, went through the trauma of it as a child, and I get it. I get that. They end up believing Chris Rock was right when he said... Do you want to be single and lonely? Or do you want to be married and bored? But all surveys today tell us that the number of married people who say that they are, quote, very happy in their marriages is high. 61 to 62% of married couples say that. And here's what's really surprising. Studies further demonstrate that about two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will be happy in five years if those people stay married and don't get divorced. And this is why I believe this concept of a covenant before God, a commitment before God, is so very, very important. And my favorite definition of commitment is simply, I'm willing to be unhappy for a while, if necessary. So, Carol, what would you say someone who's struggling uh, in their marriage, what, what, the struggling to keep their covenant, what would you tell them to do? They're struggling. All right, they're struggling, and I understand what struggle is, and I think it's important. If you're here today and you're struggling in your marriage, you're not alone. That's Everyone true. has problems and struggles in marriage, even the Queen of England, okay? The last scene in season two of The Crown, I don't know how many of you have watched that, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth makes this statement to her husband, Prince Philip. It really caught my attention. Marriage, under any circumstance, is difficult. Here's someone who would, you would think has the perfect circumstance to experience a problem-free marriage. I mean, here's a queen... Here's a royal prince. They've got all the money, the prestige, the power, anything you could possibly want, even spiritual values. She's praying. She's reading her Bible. And yet within that relationship, you find the same pressures, struggles, and conflicts in your marriage. So you need to know you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Number two, really, you don't succumb to the victim role. And I say this not to underestimate the struggle and the pain you may be experiencing because I know it's real. But you need to own the problem. You need to define the problem, not in terms of fault and blame, but in terms of influence that you have to make things better. You have influence. We're told in 1 Corinthians 7, even someone married to an unbeliever is to stay in that relationship because of the power of their example actually creates a sanctification of that relationship. The children are made holy. That marriage is a holy covenant. So there's power in that relationship and in your commitment. And you can ask God for wisdom to realize that there are different choices that you can make and seek help. I mean, my goodness. Eric and I have been to Marriage Encounter, read books, counseling. We've been in accountability groups our whole marriage, where we would seek to develop ourselves, grow personally, while at the same time learning how to be more effective in our relationship 
in our marriage and learning how to communicate. And finally, I would say you need to know that there is always hope. Mm -hmm. Always. Now, there's really been seasons in my marriage that I struggled with believing that I would ever be happy in my marriage. I wouldn't divorce Eric, but I, I really questioned, could I ever really be happy in this marriage? There was that much conflict. And my hope, though, was knowing that God had joined Eric and I together as lifelong partners, and that God doesn't make mistakes, but he does make mysteries, and our relationship has been a real mystery. But when it's anchored in the fact that we have made a covenant with God and God brought us together, and during this season, my happiness is secondary to my holiness, then that's just a mute issue that I have hope. And my hope was in becoming the kind of person that I knew God wanted me to be and that I knew that I really wanted for myself. So that I affirmed the truth that my marriage didn't create my problems and pain. It just revealed them. My marriage did magnify some issues and some brokenness in me. But I brought that brokenness in with me. And when I owned that and began to work on developing myself and my relationship to the Lord, that made all the difference in the world. And the more I attended to my personal growth, my relationship to God, the better our relationship was. I think when God pronounces the two shall become one, really he begins this process of radical change in you because two cannot, two halves don't make a whole. And what would happen in our relationship, we've got this brokenness of two halves coming together and just just kind of rubbing the jagged edges rubbing, rubbed against each other. So as we became more whole, the idea is that two wholes make a oneness, not two halves. Because God didn't create marriage to support codependency and make, create codependent relationships. And a lot of people, you may be married a long time, but I sometimes am afraid that people are just repeating the same year over and over and aren't really growing in their relationship. Oneness can only be achieved as we, own, we pursue our own holiness. Jesus died for your marriage. That's how important it is. And our marriages are the most important, um, I keep forgetting, <laughs> what? is one of the most important examples to the world, apologetic of right. the truth of Christianity. And sometimes that's, we really fail mm -hmm. to represent that. But I, I see that my children and my children's children and the world around me is dependent upon our marriage really revealing a portrait of Jesus and what he did for us in his sacrificial serving. So that's what we're committed to in our marriage. Um, I don't know how about you, what have you done to personally improve our marriage? Okay, one last thought for me and I'll keep it brief. Uh, typically when we do marriage seminars in Africa, they go on for three or four hours. People ask like 50 questions, it's just pandemonious, it's unbelievable. And I love every minute of it. But we've run out of time. I, I think this issue of changes, I, I would have to describe this, and this was difficult for me, was developing a servant's heart toward Carol. 
I don't have to be in charge. We don't have to have power struggles. I don't have to have it my way all the time. The Bible actually says that true love doesn't demand its own way, all right? And Jesus said, he that would be greatest will be what? You remember? Servant of all. So if you want to, people don't recognize the awesome power of servanthood in a marriage. It's like an invisible weapon. It, uh, it can just bring healing and release. But we, as Carol said earlier, you have to have the Holy Spirit actually free you from your self-centeredness and your tendency to want to control. Uh, Martin Luther described the fall of man and its greatest consequence with a simple Latin phrase. Uh, he said, homo incurvitus in se. You recognize the one word in the middle, the word curve? Homo incurvitus, it literally means that once we have fallen, every human being's tendency is to have their affection, their love, and the issues about them curve in upon themselves. That's what it means. And that's truly the problem with human nature. So finding uh, a change to servanthood is very, very difficult. And yet the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.21, talking about husbands and wives, that we are supposed to submit to one another, serve one another out of what? You remember? Reverence for Christ. Now, it's interesting. The NIV says reverence. That's not strong enough, in my opinion. The King James says fear of Christ. That's going to take you in the wrong direction for sure. What does the word reverence really mean? And I basically close with this. The word reverence literally means to hold in awe and wonder and amazement, to be overwhelmed and controlled by the splendor of something. You know what he's saying here? He's saying the gospel, the marriage of a man and woman should demonstrate the gospel Because we look at what Jesus did to love us and we should see his death at Calvary with absolute wonder, awe, and amazement. The sinless son of God dying for sinful people like us. That's the example that a marriage couple, a married couple is supposed to follow. That's why it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Every man here, if you want to see your wife transformed, you've got to see what Christ did. That's going to make an example to you that should be a piece of cake compared to what he had to do, what he had to face in order to redeem us. If you want to redeem your marriage, this is a no-brainer. And always realize on the overhead, the happiest marriages have two spouses who both consistently and deliberately put the needs of the other ahead of their own and always when all else fails, remember this last thought. A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. How about that, Carol? How have you dealt as we close with the awesome subject of wives be submitted to your husbands? (laughs) (laughs) I'm the servant. What are you going to (laughs) do? Yeah, no, that's a big act. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I would have to describe it as very confusing. It's been very confusing to try to figure out. Actually, both of us have the gift of leadership. We're both leaders. I mean, Eric really is a a very intuitive leader, very strong with the gift of um, encouragement. And I'm kind of a decisive leader that Eric says with the gift of discouragement. So that's kind of what we're... <laughs> it's the nature of the beast. <laughs> I'm political, I'm diplomatic. Carol's just sort of straightforward. Tell it like it is. And of course, I always struggled with the fact, well, actually, 
I should be him and he should be me. That's true. Have you ever, anyone else have a marriage where that kind of feels like we don't quite fit the model and right. it's a mystery to us. So when you understand what does it mean to um, respond to this issue that's really a hot issue right yes. now. Unfortunately, there's been tremendous abuse of women in the name of submission, both in the church and it's out. True. Unbelievable. When I go to Africa, I see it in a way that it just devastates me. And it's in the church. At the same time, you know, there's a disregard and a disrespect toward men within the church and mm -hmm. without, which is a big problem as well. So if you put aside those two extremes and really look at, well, what is it? What have I learned? I want to just share some things about what I've learned about submission. And as Eric has already alluded to there in Ephesians 5.21, you can't understand submission in marriage until you understand the challenge that's given to all believers to mutually submit to one another, to serve and to sacrifice one another. We're all called to that in Ephesians 5.21. And then when you enter into a marriage covenant with your spouse, you are at that Point, making a commitment to learn and practice submission and service in that relationship specifically. Because right. it's really easy to do that. You know, we can serve one another, we can be ushers, we can be greeters, and we're serving one another. But you actually practice sacrificial surrender and service and submission it can only happen in a relationship of marriage. Mm -hmm. And that's why God has ordained it right. and put us there to learn what Jesus wants us to learn about what it really means to be believers and to be followers of Christ. And I think it's really important uh, that as we make that commitment of sacrifice and submission and service to one another, we understand that for the woman, there's something in our very core that allows us to submit and surrender in a unique way that God has designed us, and God has put within Eric and within men, in your core is a manliness that God calls you to respond as well in the type of service that Eric was referring to. And it's going to look different in every marriage. That's Again, true. part of our problem has been in the Christian community is we want to give rules and we want to say this is how it's done and right. it's kind of this cookie-cutter thing. For a woman, I think learning how to serve Eric, and I, I think I've worked really diligently at that, realizing that I have a greater ability to adapt, to accommodate, to facilitate support. I think that's part of womanhood that has that unique ability. And the man, uh, in his submission of serving and loving me, providing safety and security in a way that a man does. And again, though, within all that context is our unique shape and our unique personalities. It's not just all about gender. We've got our spiritual gifts. We've got our passion. We've got our abilities. We've got a personality. All these things play in the marriage as strongly as the gender issue, which is often what is focused on so much. Paul talks about how we're to respond to one another in Ephesians 5. Shall I read that real quick? Is that okay? It says, submit to one another. No, we got to go. Out of reverence for Christ. Submit to me. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, 
This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means, again, we're talking mutual submission. For the husbands, this means you're to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. In marriage, there is just this mutual sacrifice, mutual service, and when you get hung up on who's doing what and when and why and how, it really isn't what God intended at all. Um, and it's really exciting to really realize that because of how God has laid out marriage, um, he is really, uh, I wanted to say this quote, in marriage both the husband and wife are to support each other in modeling the image of God through their unique design. That's exciting, sets every marriage couple on a grand adventure of knowing that a biblical vision of gender frees men and women to live beyond stereotypes. That's and that's been a huge issue in our relationship. Understanding that, that God wants us to each individually represent who he has created us to be. Um, we get to both play Jesus in the relationship. I love the way that's said in, by Kathy and Tim Keller in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. We both get the lead role. We both get to play Jesus in submission and in service. Um, and Jesus redefined what, what leadership looks like anyway in its servanthood. So my, with my just kind of closing thoughts, I encourage you to excel in serving one another. Grow both in your interdependence and your individuality. There is a he, a she, and a we in a marriage. It's not just a we. Um, there will always be a healthier we when there's a whole healthy he and she. That's so important. Uh, discover what makes each other thrive. No one can thrive when controlled or dominated. Tragically, that is what can happen. And not just a husband dominating a wife. We've all seen domineering women in, in marriage relationships, and we've seen domineering men in relationships. Neither of them represent what God intends to have happen. A godly marriage is worth fighting for, and it's where we both become complete, but it doesn't mean someone becomes less than to avoid conflict. Again, marriage isn't a place where God wants to accommodate dysfunctional relationships and codependency. No one can neglect their spiritual gifts. Everyone needs to become fully who God has called them to be. When I stand before God, it's not going to be Eric and I standing up there. You, you know that. You're standing up there, just me and God. And I'm going to give a report on what, how I've used my gifts and abilities. Every woman here is going to do that. Every man is going to do that. So it's so important in marriage that we're there to support one another to become all that they can become so that they stand before God in the full capacity of representing the image of God. Good. All right? All right. Okay. You guys got it all figured out?
want you to do your homework this week. We'll be checking up on you. There is a quiz next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for all the married couples here, for their commitment. And uh, they, they believe that their, worth is, their, their marriage is worth fighting for. And those, Lord, those that are struggling right now or there are wounds and difficulties, just give them your grace. First and foremost, they're servants before you. Give them the Holy Spirit, the ability to do what they need to do in the relationship. And Lord, as we, the husband and wife do it at the same time, wonderful things will happen. Heal us, Lord. Help us to reflect your image, your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Eric and Carol.